Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Volume. Get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers who deposit $5 or more can get a no-sweat bet up to $1,000 back in a bonus bet. I was looking at NBA futures this morning. The Golden State Warriors are plus 5,500 right now on DraftKings to win the title. So if you believe in them, that's a big number. And Denver, I have Denver as my championship favorite. And they're still the second best odds on DraftKings right now at plus 450. So lots of good NBA bets to look at over the course of the end of the season. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. New customers can get a no-sweat bet up to $1,000 if your first bet loses. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. One no sweat bet per new customer issued as one bonus bet based on amount of initial losing bet. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash promos for deposit, wagering, and eligibility restrictions, terms, and responsible gambling resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. we got a fun show for you today. We're going to lead off with a game breakdown of Mavs Pacers from last night. The Pacers have won six of their last eight, showing some encouraging signs on both ends of the floor. And then the Mavericks had their first test on the road in this four-game road trip that they have of their defense, and it did not hold up super well. So we're going to be breaking that game down from the perspective of both teams. After that, As we always do on Monday, we'll have our power rankings. And then after that, I've got about a, it looks like about 10 mailbag questions for us to hit. Uh, Get some good content out there before I head out of town tomorrow, before we come back on Wednesday. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. It's also really helpful if you leave a rating and a review on that front. Don't forget about my Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT. I threaded some clips of Mavs Pacers there today. Uh, I also will put show announcements there. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in those YouTube comments. We're going to be hitting some later on this week. All right, let's talk some basketball. So the Pacers 
are a real test for the Dallas Mavericks defense. Remember, the Dallas Mavericks had won seven in a row going into that Pacers game, and they had been the very best defense in the league over that span. Well, the Indiana Pacers have the second-best offense in the league, and they're particularly potent at home. They have a 123 offensive rating at home this season. That is just completely off the charts good. And so here we have an example of uh, what's it, an unstoppable force versus an immovable object. And the Pacers just completely lit them up. They had a 127 offensive rating in the game. Early in the game, the issue I thought was overhelping, specifically with Derek Lively. Pascal Siakam was being really aggressive physically, especially in like semi-transition, whenever he saw a little bit of a, uh, a space uh, uh, alongside him on the perimeter to try to hit the gap on PJ Washington. He would just like hit him with the hard in and out dribble and try to get downhill to his right hand or he'd attack him in the post. And in those situations, Derek Lively's in a spot there where Miles Turner, you know, most of the time in these situations, Miles Turner was sitting in the dunker spot, although there was a couple of them where he was on the three-point line too. But Derek Lively's in a position there. He's got to make a decision. His decision that he has to make is, am I going to help or am I going to stay home? And that decision is one of the most important decisions for rim protectors and defensive anchors to make. Because here's the problem. When you look at shots that uh, an offensive player is taking in a matchup, it kind of depends on what the defense is doing, the individual defender on the ball, as to whether or not it's a high percentage shot or not. So for instance, if P.J. Washington gets absolutely dusted off the dribble, then you have to help. Because if you don't help, it's a layup, which is a 100% shot. And yeah, you're going to be leaving Miles Turner, but maybe if you get lucky, you know, PJ can get back into the play and rebound or someone else on the team can rotate and, you know, clean up the miss if you're lucky. Your better option there is to take the shot away. But let's say PJ Washington is sliding with Pascal Siakam and he's kind of chesting him up and he's forcing him into like a tougher scoop shot over the top, which maybe in this case, a really well-defended possession, maybe it's only going to go in half the time. Well, at that point, it's your job as the rim protector or defensive anchor to make the decision that actually it's more important for me to keep Miles Turner off the glass here. Because if I sell out to try to block the shot, I might drop the percentage chance of him making it from 50 to something slightly below that. But if the shot gets over the top and misses anywhere around the basket, Miles Turner is just going to grab it and put it back in. And Miles Turner made him pay several times in the early stretch of the game just for overhelping. There was a play where Pascal's driving along the right side. PJ's right there with him. Derek, like, damn near zones up, goes, like, all the way outside the right block. And uh, Pascal just hits Miles Turner with a little bounce pass right there in front of the rim. Miles Turner goes up and finishes with a uh, with an and one. There was another one where he just jumped out of his shoes, even though PJ Washington was right there on Siakam and forced him into a really difficult scoop shot that he missed. But as a result, Miles Turner was able to just go up and get the offensive rebound. And then there was another one where I thought that um, uh, uh, PJ Washington was completely in position and he hard helped. And, you know, it was, it was more of a three-point look for Miles Turner because he was in the corner. And some of that is schematic. And I could tell just by watching the Mavs throughout the rest of the game, you could tell Jason Kidd kind of had them under the impression that specific guys like Miles Turner, they were kind of just going to let him shoot. Pascal Siakam, they were kind of just going to let him shoot when they caught on the perimeter. So that one I, I thought was more scheme-related. But Miles Turner was really active early in the game punishing Derek Lively for overhelping. And then in the second quarter, Tyrese Halliburton just completely took over the game in pick and roll and was just picking the Mavericks apart. Had a uh, This was a stretch where Daniel Gafford was on the floor, which we'll get into in a minute. But Daniel Gafford was running like a really... Like uh, it was like a really weak drop coverage where he wasn't exactly bothering the ball handler or bothering the roll man. We'll get a little bit further into that in a second, but started with the pocket pass to Miles Turner right up to the basket for an and one on the left side of the rim. After that, it was a pick and pop to the top of the key, knocks down a three. And then the very next possession, in this case, obviously Jason Kidd's asking for more help on the back line. Tim Hardaway Jr., basically abandons Andrew Nemhard in the left corner to essentially, I'm assuming, help tag the roller, although I didn't think he did a particularly good job of it. And Tyrese Halliburton, because he's literally the guy in the league, one of the you know four or five guys in the league that just makes perfect reads damn near every single time down the floor, hits Andrew Nemhard in the corner, knocks down a three. That run was what kind of built the gap because it was very back and forth there in that first half because specifically, Luca was like red hot to start the game. He Picked up the Ben Matherin matchup 
from the opening tip and just was ISOing him every single time down the floor. I think he scored on him four of the first five possessions of the game. So that kind of kept the game close. But that little pick-and-roll run from Tyrese Halliburton there in the uh, second quarter built that like initial little gap in uh, on the scoreboard. They end up going into the half up by seven. And then in the third quarter, kind of back and forth, the game ho- hovers in that seven to 11 point range. But in the early fourth quarter, Kyrie Irving gets Doug McDermott on a switch, hits him with a nasty step back jump shot to cut the lead to four. And all of a sudden we have ourselves a basketball game. And then Ben Shepard and Obi Toppin hit back to back massive threes. Ben Shepard off of a coming out of the right corner, just a little kind of wide pin down where he comes up to the wing and catches and shoots a three. And then Obi Toppin actually hit one, turning over his left shoulder above the break, a pretty high difficulty catch and shoot shot from Obi Toppin. But both of those guys hit timely shots all night, and those two particular threes pushed the double, pushed the lead back up to double digits. I wanted to shout out Ben Shepard for a second because I thought he had two really important two-way sequences in this game. In the first half, there was a sequence where he hit a three on the right wing. Then on the very next possession, as Kyrie's pushing the ball up the floor in transition, he offers smart help as Kyrie's kind of got his head down engaged on the on-ball defender, and he ends up picking Kyrie clean, which leads to a dunk on the other end of the floor. So like a little 5-0 run basically by himself, which was a big stretch in that game. I think it was tied when he did that too, and it pushed it up uh, to put them up five, if I remember correctly. And then in the second half, we talked about that huge three coming off the wide pin down. On the very next possession, he had Kyrie in an ISO. Kyrie was sizing him up, and he Kyrie opted for the jab, step, jump shot. And Ben's got some long arms, got a very good contest, and forced Kyrie into a wedgie, like the ball stuck into the side of the rim. So an ugly miss, which you don't typically see from Kyrie Irving all that often. So credit to Ben Shepard, some really good two-way sequences in this particular game. And so at that point, Tyrese Halliburton checks back into the game and he just closes the deal, picking the Mavericks apart in pick and roll again, just like he did in the second quarter. In this stretch, he was really picking on Maxi Kleba. And again, remember Dallas, like they run the drop with Daniel Gafford and and Derek Lively, but with Maxi, they do a lot more switching de- depending on you know how successful the screen was. And and Maxi just could not handle Tyrese Halliburton on the switch. He got beat to a step back three going to the right. He got beat to the basket for a scoop shot. Next thing you know, you look up to the scoreboard and the Pacers are up by twenty and the game is over. So really, really impressive win for the Pacers to get their sixth win in eight tries. A couple of other elements on the Pacers' offense that I wanted to hit on. They ran the floor super well in transition, something they've done well all season long. Their bigs run the middle of the floor, but they always have corner shooters running their lanes on the wing. And then their guards just do a really good job of every single time they see somebody up the floor, they make the kick-ahead pass. And there's real value in that for two reasons. One, you know, if you kick the ball up the floor and the guy's open, he can shoot it. Ben Shepard, actually his third three, second three of the game, but the, one of the three threes he hit, we talked about the other two. Uh, was on the left wing in transition. Just you watch him. He's he, the, they get the defensive rebound. He's just sprinting up the floor like head down, and then he he turns around and the ball's just in his hands. And then he's already got his feet set uh, all game long. And I've I've noticed this with Ben. Just uh, really good footwork at move uh, off the move at getting straight up and down, nice and balanced. Uh, but they just run the floor in transition super super well. And then again, I talked about the other advantage of uh, of kick-ahead passes. Let's say that Ben Shepard doesn't have a shot there because the Mavericks' defensive uh, transition defense rotates out to him. In that situation, all Dallas defenders are suddenly looking up the floor to the corner where Ben Shepard is, right? So even if they rotate, now all of the trailing offensive players have the advantage of the ball being in a situation where their defender is going to be looking away from them. And that creates opportunities for trailers to get open. Maybe the maybe you're a trailing shooter and your defender is looking up the floor at Ben. You might be able to change your angle a little bit and find a little soft spot for a three or maybe a catch a guy not looking with the screen. That's where that's where you can find a lot of opportunities in transition and in semi-transition. But in order to do that, you have to make the kick ahead pass. Now, the reverse of that is guys are running their lanes and the on-ball guy just brings the ball up the floor off the dribble. Now the defense can essentially backpedal in transition and everything is in front of them. So that kind of gives you an idea of the difference between, uh, or just an idea of the value of making those kick-ahead passes. Uh, The other big thing that stood out to me, two other things. Pascal Siakam's rim pressure. Just really, really, uh, uh, it's 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 another way to get the defense in transition. 
But I really like it because it brings a physical imposition to the game. It's something that they didn't really have before that trade, and it's something I think that translates really well to the playoffs. That's why I put in my notes brute force. Like brute force offense is like a an important thing to have in your bag when you get to the postseason. And there were a lot of possessions where they got great shots, not by running some sort of action, not by using you know Tyrese Halliburton's offensive genius. But just by Pascal Siakam being bigger and faster than the guy guarding him and able to just kind of get downhill into the lane, make the defense collapse and make good things happen from there. And then lastly, a lot of really smart actions uh, from Rick Carlisle that they were running to take advantage of specific issues in Dallas's defense. One thing that I noticed a lot in the first half is they were screening Luka. And then using Luca's man, it was Ben Matherin in this case, to then set the ball screen. So uh, a very common basketball action that we see is what's called a ram screen, which is basically where you screen the screener to go set a ball screen. And usually it involves big men. And the main reason why is big guys struggle to navigate screens, right? And the reason why you do that is if you can create a separation between the big man and the big man's defender, it makes it easier for you to get an advantage in the ball screen. Imagine I'm the big guy who's on defense and there's the big guy that's on offense next to me. If he runs up to go set a ball screen and it's Tyrese Halliburton, so you have to be up at the level because he's such a good pull-up shooter, I'm just going to run right up there behind him, right? And whatever my coverage is, whether it's a hedge and recover, whether it's a high drop, whether it's a blitz, whatever it is, I- I'm just going to run up and go get into my spot, right? Then I'm going to communicate, call out the angle of the screen, and and it'll give us our better chance to defend the action, right? But let's say someone screens down on me as the guy is running up to go set the screen. I now have to navigate a screen to get to my spot in the pick and roll coverage. And so a lot of times you can find openings there by creating a gap between the screen defender and the screener. And then that guy can set a ball screen. Now when Tyrese Halliburton comes off the screen, he's coming off into open space instead of coming off into where that you know help defender is supposed to be. So they were basically doing that with Luca. Now the reason why you do it with the big typically is with the big, they struggle to navigate screens. Well, Luca, especially in this game, and I thought Luca and Kyrie, who have been pretty good defensively for the most part this season, were both pretty bad in this one. Luca just dies on the screen. When he dies on the screen, Ben Matherin runs up and he's now setting a free and clear screen on Tyrese Halliburton. He's able to come off and you know get to his pull-up jump shot or get to uh, the next help defender in line to try to make a read. So really smart actions there. Last thing I noticed that they were doing was they were doing a lot of back screening the roll man in their Spain pick, uh, in their uh, pick and roll action, which is a variation of Spain pick and roll. So Spain pick and roll is basically you have a shooter underneath the basket while the big man's setting the screen, and then they basically roll and replace. So as the big man's rolling to the basket, the shooter is relocating to the top. And the two variations of it are sometimes the roll man will intentionally run into the shooter's man to try to get the shooter open, and sometimes the shooter will intentionally run into the screener's man, which will get the screener open, right? So like that's like the two variations that you'll see, but they were able to get downhill and get to the basket for easy layups just by backscreening Lively and backscreening Daniel Gafford with whoever it was that was under the basket. Sometimes it was Tyrese Halliburton with Andrew Nemhard on the ball. Sometimes it was Andrew Nemhard with Tyrese Halliburton on the, wall, uh, on the ball. A lot of really, really smart stuff from Indiana to keep their offense humming. Again, 127 offensive rating in this game against a Dallas Mavericks defense that has been dominant um over the course of the last or the previous seven games. Pacers last eight games are six and two. A couple of quality wins in there against the Knicks and the Mavs. Fourth in offense, 13th in defense, and 18th in defensive rebounding. So some of the best defense and rebounding stretches that we've seen from the Pacers this season playing some solid basketball. They have a tough schedule coming up though. They have the Pels in a home and home and then they go to Dallas for a rematch. And then they're home for Minnesota and then they're at Orlando and at Oklahoma City. So a bunch of bigger, more physical front lines, it's going to be a good test for them. On the Dallas front, they were scoring well enough to keep pace with Indy for most of the game, but then they went ice cold in the fourth quarter. They had a six-minute span after Kyrie's pull-up jump shot that cut the ball to, uh, cut the score to four. They had a six-minute a six span after that where they scored just four points, missed a bunch of good looks from three, had some bad turnovers, so their offense just kind of stalled out. Uh, I was more worried about them on the defensive end of the floor in this particular game. I'm not worried about Dallas's ability to score, uh, especially against a team like Indiana. They were never even really able to slow down Indiana's offense. They gave up at least 32 points in every single quarter. They could not find a coverage that worked. They, uh, I, I wanted to kind of dive in on the Gafford and Lively thing. They're both very different. I think Lively's actually a better pick-and-roll defender than Daniel Gafford right now. Daniel Gafford... You know, I talked about this after the trade. 
Um, and I use the concept the, the comp of like a Montrez Harrell type of guy. Daniel Gefford's, in my opinion, is bigger and stronger and longer and a better athlete than Montrez Harrell. So it's not like really that clean of a comp. But the reason why I use that comp is, I mean, Montrez Harrell's an excellent role man with great hands who can who goes up around the rim actively is a good offensive rebounder, right? That but on the defensive end of the floor, the dude was just a, was just tissue paper. Now Daniel Gafford has the potential to be much much better because he's got the physical tools that a guy like Montrez didn't have. But that is like the archetype that I look at. It's like a really good athlete, like uh, like pick and roll guy who's like an excellent scorer on the roll who has real vertical spacing but is kind of you know problematic on the defensive end of the floor. And one of the specific things that Daniel Gafford will get himself caught into in terms of trouble is he'll get caught in no man's land in pick and roll. So imagine in a ball screen, there are two threats, right? In the two-on-two action that's taking place. Obviously, there are threats all, but in the two, the two threats that are on the ball are the guy coming over the top of the screen, and you have to worry about a pull-up three, you have to worry about a floater, and you have to worry about him getting downhill all the way to the rim, right? And then there's the roll man that's coming off the other, after he sets the screen, he's rolling hard down the middle of the floor. There you're worried about, you know, maybe a pocket pass and a little floater or a, a, a mid-range jump shot or any sort of lob pass at the basket. You know, uh, if you step up too high, Tyrese gets the pass over the top, there's dunk there, right? So you kind of have to do one of two things. You have to either concede whatever the ball handler is doing to take away the roll, or you have to take away whatever the ball handler is doing and concede the roll man, right? And it's a difficult job. Some of the very best defensive players in the world can do both, right? The Go Bears and the Anthony Davises and Bam Adebayo's and such, Victor Wembanyama. Those guys, they cover so much ground that sometimes they can like stunt up and bother the ball handler while also getting back and making plays at the rim and one of the problems that Daniel Gafford was having a problem with today or last night is when he would come up high out of his drop coverage on a guy like Tyrese Halliburton, he wasn't coming up high enough to actually bother Tyrese at all. And so Tyrese was able to make easy over the top passes, but then at the same time, he's not back far enough to do anything to the role man. And again, like if you are active on the ball, like if he steps up higher and he uses his length, to get up more into Tyrese Halliburton, he can force that pass to either be deflected or to take a funky angle or to maybe he has to double pump or throw it super high, like something to disrupt that pass to make it so that it's easier for the backline guys to rotate. Let's say PJ Washington's your low man in, in, in this sort of situation. PJ Washington has a better chance to get over and blow that play up or even a guy like Tim Hardaway Jr. who they were using as a low man during that stretch He's got the athleticism that if you buy him enough time, he might be able to jump up high and, and, and try to make some sort of play on the basketball. But if you're not bothering Tyrese Halliburton, the pass is easily getting over the top. At that point, if you're also not bothering the roll man at all, you're effectively in no man's There's like no man's land and pick and roll coverage. If like the best in the world can kind of do both, but like your job is you've got to make something difficult there. You either have to get up higher on the ball handler to bother him more or backpedal to take away the roll and hope he misses his floater, right? Like, you got to do something. And, and it too frequently, and again, I want to be clear with Daniel Gafford, he's got the tools to be a lot better than he has been. It's just, it, more, more often than not, it's, it's just schematic, him, him being in no man's land, and then two, just a little bit slow to kind of read and react to some of this stuff. And so, but just by upping his activity, and then just by being a, a part of a better defensive team where he can like kind of pick up what's happening around him, I think he can get better. And then again, the Kleba uh, switching didn't work. That's, that's an important anchor of Dallas's defense. And then their transition defense was bad. Indiana was just running out on them all night long. For the record, Dallas's transition defense, I, I want to say they're 23rd in defense, uh, trans transition defense points allowed per possession, according to Synergy. So that's pretty bad. This road trip was always going to be a test for Dallas. And this is just the first test. But they failed their first test. And so their next chance is at Cleveland tomorrow night to right the ship. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories 
from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. All right, let's get to our power rankings like we do every Monday. So uh, we had two teams drop out this week. The Suns dropped games to the Mavs and the Rockets coming out of the break. Offense has a tendency to stall out for them when Bradley Beal is out, although they did have an encouraging fourth quarter against the Lakers the other night, but they are out of the, or yesterday I should say, but they are out of the power rankings for this week. And then the New Orleans Pelicans. Every time, I swear, that I feel like I'm about to jump on the Pelicans bandwagon, they go and drop a couple of games to mediocre teams, and they just dropped back-to-back games to the Heat and the Bulls, so they're out of the power rankings for this week. Number 10, the Dallas Mavericks. The additions of Daniel Gafford and P.J. Washington have upped the athletic profile of the team. They are also healthy now, and they are competing better defensively and on the glass than they have all season last night, notwithstanding. But they did fail the first trip, uh, the first test of their road trip in Indiana, and their defense got absolutely shredded. Two more tests on this trip in Cleveland and in Boston. Number nine, the Indiana Pacers. They've won six of their last eight games, capped off, like I said, with the big win over the Mavs yesterday. They are also, like Dallas, defending and rebounding better than they have most of the season. Tyrese Halliburton is looking a little bit more like himself with each passing game. I've been talking about this, but like soft tissue injuries and then like bone issues and like feet and knees. Uh, or bone or ligament issues in feet and knees, there's always like a two-phase recovery. There's recovery once, which is like getting healthy. But then recovery two is like actually trusting your body again. Because when you make really explosive moves, it takes a certain amount of confidence in your body to hold up. And a lot of times you will kind of hold back if you don't trust your body to hold up. And so I, I just remember this personally happening to me when I, when I broke my foot, when I was in college, like I just, I went through half the season where I just didn't even trust myself to, to take off, off my right foot. Right. And, and specific, I had a, any of you guys who've had hamstring issues, I, I had a hamstring in, uh, uh, issue when I was younger, I was like 20, uh, like 19, 20 years old. Uh, but like ha- hamstring issues in particular, like you're so nervous, you're going to re-injure it that like it causes you to kind of play with a certain amount of hesitancy played on a minutes restriction in his first six games coming back from the hamstring only 14 points and six assists per game on 50% from the field 35% from three Hallie's last five games back to playing big minutes 20 points and 12 assists per game 48% from the field and 42% from three so looking a little bit more like Tyrese Halliburton with each passing game number eight 
The New York Knicks, they're still in a free fall without their front line all down through uh, because of injury. They did beat the Sixers, but they got handled by the Celtics the other night. Most of, or yesterday, I should say, most of the data and film that we're getting out of the Knicks right now is completely useless as it uh, pertains to their playoff potential because this whole team is about like incredibly physically imposing front line plus Jalen Brunson. And right now it's like Jalen Brunson with none of their front line guys. So it just, it just doesn't really give you much to work with in terms of learning about this team. A couple of silver linings, though. I think Precious Achua is actually doing a really nice job filling in at power forward. And then Dante DiVincenzo shooting the shit out of the basketball in super high volume. He's scaling up his offense with guys out with injury, and he's doing well. He's really been a great pickup for them this season. Big shout-out to the Knicks, who have just completely turned around their, uh, their fortunes over the course of the last couple of years. Number seven, the Cleveland Cavaliers. They've lost three of their last five. Donovan Mitchell missed two of those games with an illness. It was good to see him back out on the court against the Wizards yesterday. In this five-game span, though, ironically, it's been their defense. That's been the issue. They have a 120 defensive rating in their three losses. Here's their silver lining, though. Jared Allen has been absolutely crushing as of late. His last 15 games, 19 points and 11 rebounds per game on 60% shooting from the field. And then Darius Garland, he's another guy who's really rhythm-oriented and Typically, when he comes back from injuries, it can get to a slow start. First five games coming back, 11 points and five rebounds per game, or excuse me, five assists per game on 46% from the field and 30% from three. His last seven games, 16 points and eight assists per game, 47% from the field and 34% from three. So starting to get it going. Three-point shots looked really good over the last four games, 40% in his last four. Number six, the Minnesota Timberwolves. They bounced back against the Nets on the tail end of a back-to-back on Saturday. They had a pretty loss to the Bucks on Friday that exposed a lot of issues with their half-court offense. Bucks ran a super deep drop. They were not able to hit the pull-up jump shots and floaters necessary to get the defense into rotation. But even above and beyond any of that, because some of that is just their personnel, Like I, I really do think that that's kind of the way that you can kind of play Minnesota into some issues. However... The other uh, concern that I had in that particular game was just their offensive approach. As things started to kind of go off the rails for them, a lot of rushed shots, a lot of unnecessary one-on-one, a lot of like walking into a pick and roll without any sort of other action to set it up or do, do just do something to try to put Milwaukee in the blender before you run that type of action. And again, that's been my issue with the Timberwolves all season. They're just a little bit on the predictable and 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 kind of inconsistent decision-making side of things when it comes to their half-court offense. And I did not think their performance against the, uh, uh, the Bucks was very encouraging on that front. Number five, the Los Angeles Clippers. They're sleepwalking out of the All-Star break. They got smacked by the Thunder. They got smacked by the Kings, although Kawhi Leonard was out for that particular game. Ty Lue himself said that the next few days of practice will be mainly about getting the team mentally focused again. The Clippers have alternated wins and losses over their last eight games, and they are 29th in defense over that span. Think about that. The LA Clippers, who have been a dominant defense for most of the year, especially in the half court, they're really, really struggling defensively as of late, hitting a little bit of a lull here. So again, this has been a team that's been really attacking the regular season. It's completely unrealistic to expect a team to do that for all 82. Uh, So I'm not, I, I don't think it's unusual for a team to hit a lull. The big thing to watch is how quickly they can get out of it and how frequently that happens down the stretch of the season. Number four, the Milwaukee Bucks. They had two huge wins over the Sixers and the Wolves to start their post-All-Star stretch. Like I said earlier against Minnesota, a lot of uh, downhill athleticism on that team, a lot of power players. They perfectly executed their deep drop coverage. Brooke Lopez dominated the game defensively. But the the Sixers game in particular was a very different challenge. I was watching some film on that this morning. Tyrese Maxey brings that downhill speed, but he's one of the best shooters in the league. And so much more of a challenge for their perimeter defense against the drop coverage. I thought Malik Beasley had one of his best defensive games of the season, specifically making Tyrese work hard to get to his spots, applying really good back pressure. He's been getting better and better each game. Like, Because again, he's got decent athletic tools he's not overly big but he is fast like he does have the ability to move he's just been a guy that hasn't been that focused on the defensive end in his career and you're actually watching him kind of learn on the fly how to be this guy and I thought he did a really nice job against Tyrese Maxey I also wanted to shout out Jay Crowder I thought he had a bunch of good possessions on Tyrese Maxey especially in the first half and like here's the thing like 
Jay Crowder, I think, has been written off by most people as being a little bit too old. Um, but like this is the best I've seen him look physically on defense in a couple of years too, and I I, I think that that's been kind of an underrated pickup, underrated by myself too, because I didn't think he had anything left in the tank, and and he's just been he's just been particularly solid for them on defense as of late. But most importantly, the Bucks' offense is humming again. If you guys remember during the uh, um, gosh, I can't even remember which video it was. I think it was the uh, um, I think it was right before the break. But I talked about how I had a goal that I hoped the Milwaukee Bucks would hit for the tail end of the season as an indicator of like kind of like a benchmark that they need to hit to to, to feel like they're on track. And that was a 120 offensive rating and a 115 defensive rating for those of you guys who were listening. 120 being like we're humming on all centers off- uh, cylinders offensively and the 115 being like we are a solid defense, which I think is all they really need to be is if they can reach that level um, offensively. Well, the defense has been incredible ever since Doc Rivers took over. Post-deadline so far, they have a 120 offensive rating and a 105 defensive rating. And if they can sustain that, forget about it. Like then Now we're talking about a team that's on the same tier with Boston and Denver. Now we'll see. It's a too small of a sample size to really judge it at this point, but they are on track to hit those specific markers that I'm going to be watching here down the stretch of the season. Number three, the Oklahoma City Thunder. They had an undefeated week. They beat the Clippers, the Wizards, and the Rockets. Over this span, a 126 offensive rating and a 102 defensive rating. That's outrageous, plus 24 net. Really impressive win over the Clippers. Just ran them off the floor in the third quarter. They scored 36 points in transition. All five starters scored at least 12 points. They blocked 11 shots. The Clippers had no shot guarding them in ball screens. The the Thunder scored 1.48 points per possession in pick and rolls, including passes, which is outrageous. They had 1.16 points per half-court possession in that game. So just completely picked the Clippers apart. Big week for them. Number two, the Denver Nuggets. They look laser-focused coming out of the break. They had an undefeated week as well. Peak half-court two-way dominance that we expect from Denver in that get win against Golden State last night. They got hit with some haymakers in that game, too, and it just didn't matter. Klay Thompson was red hot earlier in the game, and Golden State's been a famously good third-quarter team, and it just didn't matter. And then Nicole Jokic, with a preposterous 32 points, 16 rebounds, and 16 assists in that game, only been done three other times in NBA history. James Harden had a 53-16-17 and 17 once, which is completely ridiculous. And then Oscar Robertson did it twice back in the old days. Number one, though, the Boston Celtics beat the Bulls and the Knicks this week to extend their streak to eight games. I really thought the Knicks game in particular was a positive step for them. We've talked a lot about the Knicks or the Celtics offense as of late as it pertains to their kind of shot selection and them leaning too much on the perimeter, not getting enough easy stuff around the basket. Well, they had 58 points in the paint against the Knicks. They only averaged 46 points in the paint per game, which is 27th in the NBA. We did a deep dive on this uh, just a few days ago. And if you guys remember, I talked about specific things, four specific things that they could do to up their points in the paint running out for layups and dunks. They had seven possessions against the Knicks where they ran out in transition and made a two-point shot, posting up for bully ball shots at the rim instead of constantly fading away. Jalen Brown is a guy who's a really good fadeaway jump shooter over both shoulders. I thought he set the tone early in the first half, back like backing guys down and getting layups at the rim out of the post. And then Chris Opsporzingis and Al Horford also had post-up baskets right around the rim. The third one was cutting instead of spotting up all the damn time. So like, again, spotting up, an important thing to do. Three-point shots have high value. But when a defender turns his back on you and helps, you can also get a 100-point shot. Or 100% shot. <laughs> that was funny. Okay, uh, you get a 100% shot, which is if you cut back door, you can get something easy around the basket. And again, like a, a really good spot-up shooter, the best in the world, uh, are going to convert uh, spot-up possessions at like one5 points per possession, right? 1.4 points per possession. I think that's where Norman Powell's at this year. Uh, it's usually in that 1.3, 1.4 range. But like a, a, a backdoor cut for a layup is going to get you two points the vast majority of the time. And so it's not something that's open all the time, but when you see those opportunities, you can get baskets there. Drew Holiday had a basket on, I think it was a Jalen Brown post-up where he cut along the baseline when he saw his man turn his head instead of waiting at the three-point line. Um, Jalen Brown. Had a cut off of the left wing out of a, uh, I think it was a Porzingis post up, just slashed down the middle of the floor. They hit him, 
he had an easy layup. That's a great way to generate points in the paint in the flow of the offense. Uh, then the last one was crashing the offensive glass. They had 11 points on offensive rebound putbacks in this game. They typically only average six per game. So just scaling up in some specific possession types to drive some more offense in the paint to add more offensive versatility. They also hit 15 threes in this game, but they also added some versatility. They were able to, to, to score in the paint more effectively than they have for most of the season. I thought it was a really encouraging game for the Celtics. They are at number one in our power rankings for God knows how many consecutive weeks now. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. All right, let's move on to our mailbag. Hey, Jason, can you discuss how you would suggest defending a team like Denver? You always mention about how fluent and unstoppable Denver's offense is. But if you did, but if you had to strategize a defensive game plan for Denver, how would you do that? Awesome job on the show. I always enjoy your basketball knowledge best in the business. Thank you so much for the kind words. So here's the deal. As you mentioned, not really a good option. And most of it has to do with personnel, too. Like, if you are a team that has you know, really, really bad perimeter defense and really, really bad, like not don't have the quality of help defender, or I shouldn't say help defender, post defender to really match up with Nikola Jokic, you might have to be just really sharp in your double teaming and rotations, right? But if you have ball personnel uh, in the post and on the perimeter, it might reflect differently. In the event, let's just say that I have an average NBA defense. I'll, I'll, I'll just pick a particular matchup, for example. Let's say the Golden State Warriors. If I was coaching the Warriors and I was trying to get stops against the uh, uh, the Denver Nuggets, what I would do is I would try as often as possible to make Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray score. Now, here's the thing. They will do it sometimes. They did it last night in large doses. The Boston game, the game in Boston where Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic just made shot after shot after shot after shot. But in my opinion, your best chance to beat Denver is Nicole Jokic and Jamal Murray hopefully fatiguing at some point and starting to miss shots? Because tough shot making is all about leg strength. 
and getting lift in physicality, right? And so in my opinion, I would rather there's a, there's there's two specific reasons why I would rather try to defend Murray and Jokic one-on-one and two-on-two versus sending multiple defenders. One, fatigue, like I just mentioned, wear them out, hopefully they miss shots. But two, it keeps the other three players out of rhythm. So if for whatever reason the ball does end up in a Michael Porter Jr.'s hand in a transition three situation, or the ball does end up uh, in post-up of Aaron Gordon on a random possession here or there, maybe just because they haven't touched the ball as much in that particular game as they usually do, they won't be as confident, as in rhythm as they usually are. And again, that strategy that I'm the, the strategy that I'm pitching, which is basically defending them two-on-two and one-on-one and just forcing them to make tough shots, teams have tried that against Denver and it doesn't work. So I'm not trying to sit here and act like I've solved Denver, but as a like if I was a coach thinking about it from the standpoint of what strategy I would want to implement over the course of a playoff series, I would try to leave them on an island as much as possible. But there's another side to that. I also am a big believer in disguising coverages, flipping coverages, trying to disrupt rhythm just by keeping them off balance. So like I would probably do a good amount of two-on-two, one-on-one coverage, but I probably would have Looney on the ball with Draymond roaming on the back line sometimes, ignoring Aaron Gordon to offer more help. Uh, Jokic was killing Looney with the chicken wing drop step in that game. And it's like, he needs to be chicken wing drop stepping right into Draymond Green, just like they're ready, physical, trying to get a deflection, something like that, right? I throw zone looks at him. I like I would do all sorts of things. And randomly blitz Jamal Murray like five times a game. You know, like I, I, you just just try to find ways to kind of just keep them off balance a little bit. But the primary coverage that I would go with is a two-on-two or a one-on-one with my best on-ball defender on Jamal chasing over the top and with my most physical post defender on Nikola Jokic. And just be like, okay, yeah, that's a really tough shot you hit. Got to keep making them. But again, I'm not trying to pretend like that's going to work. Um, hi Jason big fan of your show keep up the work we all know that Jokic is by far the best player in the world today and maybe has been for two plus years but how does this version of Jokic compare to the best versions of other great players in the last 10 to 15 years hard to pick him over prime LeBron who uh, who would beat him uh, who would beat him in most categories apart from half court offense but do you think this version of Jokic is better than any version of Katie and Steph I think this version of Jokic is much better than than uh, Katie and Steph To, to put it simply Katie and Steph, neither of them ever had a point in time where you could definitively say they were the best player in the league. There were Kevin Durant fans during the prime of his career who thought he was better than LeBron. And a lot of those people were just people who didn't like LeBron. But like, and then there was Warriors fans. Like Warriors fans think Steph is the best player in the world and has been for, you know, the better part of a decade. But you were not finding many people outside of the Golden State fan base that thought Steph Curry was the best player in the world. That's the difference between Nikola Jokic and those guys. Like, like I would, I'd venture to guess if I hold a hundred random NBA fans of all 30 NBA fan bases, including some casual fans that don't really have a team, I'd venture to guess more than 90% of them would say Nikola Jokic is the best player in the world. That just never was the case for Steph Curry, and that just never was the case for Kevin Durant. So you have to go back to guys like LeBron, Kobe, MJ. Like, like here's the thing. Jokic isn't on that level because he hasn't accumulated the accomplishments yet, but he is on that trajectory. Nikola Jokic is very firmly on a goat level trajectory. It's just a a question of whether or not he can sustain this dominance over the course of the next decade. But if he does, like if Nikola Jokic sustains his dominance, what is he like 26, 27 years old now? If he goes like six or seven years and wins, you know, four titles, four additional titles and wins, you know, one or two more MVPs, like he just automatically cracks into that like top five, six players of NBA history, you know, and Steph has gotten into that conversation because of his longevity and his accumulation of accolades. But again, there was never a version of Steph Curry where definitively around the league, everyone thought he was the best player in the world. Like I briefly got on that train in like 2022, but it didn't last. It just, it's just one of those things where you got to, you got to, you got to compliment Nicole Jokic on the dominance. The dominance is just um, like, like, like literally you watch him and you're like, wow, this dude's just way better than everybody. Now, again, the dominance has to extend season to season to season. Like if Jokic goes into the postseason this year and gets outplayed by somebody and gets beat, you know, that, that question changes. But I do think, I do think the overarching opinion of the basketball community is that Nicole Jokic is by far the best player in the world right now. Do you know why Curry has struggled to score against Denver in the last two years? I find it funny that uh, funny that KCP keeps clamping his ass up and he really isn't doing anything. So um, 
I don't think it really uh, here's the thing. KCP is a really good perimeter defender. I'm not trying to undercut that, but I don't think it's any one thing that's slowing Curry down. I think it has to do with just the configuration of Denver's defense. Denver's backline is uh, Denver's defense has good on ball personnel at the forward position and in the guard spot, right? Like KCP and Aaron Gordon. But the flip side of that is like their other guys, they're all just like do their job guys. So for instance, Guys like Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic are really good help defenders, right? And so as long as they can stay in help, they can be a really impactful defense. But the problem is, is Golden State doesn't have enough off-ball offensive talent to consistently punish help. And so Steph Curry is in this predicament where Denver's defense is kind of built to slow him down because they can have KCP just ball pressure the hell out of him, be super physical off the ball, and they can trap and hedge in all of his ball screens, and there's just not enough offensive talent to make them punish uh, to punish them on the back line because Aaron Gordon is an excellent help defender, and Michael Porter Jr. is an excellent help defender. Nikola Jokic is really active with his hands and ball screens and is really good at reading the uh, Golden State off-ball actions and jumping in front of them. He had a bunch of steals. La- I think he did four steals last night, right? So, like, I don't blame Curry for that. I just think it's a bad matchup for the team and it manifests in Curry offensive struggles. Next one. My man hates Torian Prince. Um, I had uh, my producer, uh, one of our producers, Paul, was complaining, uh, uh, joking about this last night. I want to be clear. I don't have any issue with Torian Prince. I actually was really excited when the Lakers signed him this summer. I don't blame him at all for what's happened this season. This is a textbook example of a guy who, for like the better part of a half decade was a bench player in the NBA. That's what he is. He's a bench NBA wing and Darvin Ham has miscast him as a high, you know, a high minutes in many cases starting forward. And he just has struggled there because that's, that's not what his place. And I want to be clear. I have no issues with Torian Prince by all indicators. He's a great guy who really coachable and plays hard. He's just being there's, I talk about slotting a lot on this show and this is like intentional or slotting from the Lakers. Cause they have better players than him that they can play better, uh, higher minutes. But Torian Prince is being slotted into a role. That's kind of above what he's capable of. If you slot him properly, then all of a sudden things start to make more sense. All right, four more questions and then we're done. Hey, love the show and have been watching for so long that even if I don't watch the games every day, I'll still watch your show. Thank you again. Um, Even though you don't cover the lower teams in the league, what do you think happened to Jordan Poole? His work ethic was insane from being a terrible player his first two years to being a key piece in the finals run. He also led the Warriors as as the number one when Curry was out. He can easily be the number one. So what's up with him? I love the guy, but it's hard getting moved to the bench on the Wizards. I am so not off the Jordan Poole train yet. I think he is a really, really good combination of like speed with skill, but also audacity, which I think is actually a good thing when it comes to guards. Um, I don't think his success in Golden State was an accident. I I, I, can't, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I tweeted them out the other day because I kind of had that. The reason why I pulled this question is I was actually thinking about this other, the other day, but like for three straight seasons in Golden State before he went to Washington, he was like a good, efficient score. And you're right. Like, he led the units in most cases when Steph was off. There were stretches where Steph got hurt and he carried the team to to being good enough to kind of float the ship. So like a couple of things. I, I, I attribute it to two things. One, he's a young guard who just got paid. So like think about all the, think about where your headspace was. Those of you guys who are older, think about where your headspace was when you were in your early 20s and your priorities and, and all that kind of stuff. Like he's got, he's learning how to be a pro. In a lot of ways. And, you know, like, uh, I, I just think it's way too early to jump off that bandwagon. And the second piece of it, the Warrior, the Wizards are a shit show. <laughs> like, like, what if we took Jordan Poole and we dropped him in Dallas in like, in like Jaden Hardy's role? And he was like the third ball handler for the Dallas Mavericks. You don't think he'd be awesome there? I think he'd be awesome there. So, like, part of it's just bad organization, bad team. And then another part of it is like, he's got to grow up a little bit. He's got to grow up a little bit and, kind of tighten up his decision making, tighten up like his overall like shot selection and just his approach to the game. And and another big thing with Jordan Poole is like I think he makes things unnecessarily difficult on the floor sometimes. And so just by kind of like learning how to identify the easy ways that he can imp- impact when leaning more into those and using his like, you know, that audacity that I was talking about more as a counter rather than as like the foundational part of his offense, I think that would go a long way to turning his uh slump around. I had multiple comments along this line. 
Pretending like a deep drop will work against Boston is pretty funny, not going to lie. I hope the Bucs try it. So I'm not going to sit here and pretend like the Bucs can't beat a deep drop. Of course they can. Derek, uh, Derek White can hit pull-up threes. Jalen Brown can hit pull-up threes. Jason Tatum can hit pull-up threes. Some Boston fans in the comments rightly pointed out that a great counter to drop coverage is a pick-and-pop with Chris Porzingis. The reason why I talked about it is because the Celtics have a tendency to occasionally go very cold. And so, like I said, if I was coaching against Boston, and by the way, this I want to be clear up front. I don't think I don't think the Bucs are going to beat the Celtics in a series. I've picked Boston through, uh, ever since that early stretch of the season when Milwaukee really struggled. If Boston played Milwaukee in a series tomorrow, I'd pick Boston every single time. I'm talking about that would be their best chance to play Boston into their worst tendencies. Would you be incredibly shocked if Tatum and White just missed a bunch of pull-up jump shots and Porzingis only shot 32% on pick-and-pop threes instead of 38% or 42% or something like that, and they had a few cold nights, and all of a sudden it's a series tied at two, and there's a game in Boston, and they start three for 15 from three, and all of a sudden Milwaukee's up seven, and Giannis is bullying his way to the rim. and like It's not inconceivable, right? That's all I'm saying. I'm saying deep drop is probably Milwaukee's best chance to play Boston into their worst tendencies, which is to settle for jump shots from the perimeter, particularly off the dribble. That's all I meant by that. That doesn't mean it's going to work. It's just their best available strategy. Whereas the Knicks and the Heat in particular, they are teams that that actually kind of plays into their strengths. If you let Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson come free and clear off the of screens all night, that's literally their favorite way to play. And they're not a team that can beat, you know, switching coverages and things like that because they're not great at beating guys off the dribble, right? Like that, that's kind of what I meant. Jalen Brunson, if you run a deep drop of coverage against him, the dude's going to average 37, 38 points a game in a series because that's just, that's like his best way to play the game, right? That's all I meant by that. And I, I Celtics fans to have real, like, Celtics fans have really struggled to differentiate the difference between like me talking about what they need to do to win the title versus criticism. Those are two completely different things. Like all of these teams have like Denver is the only team that you guys will hear me talk about that. I don't like really nitpick and it's because I trust them at a different level, but like all the other 29 teams in the league, I cover them the exact same way. Here's what they're good at. Here's what they're bad at. Here's what they need to fix in order to reach their individual ceiling. That's all we're talking about with Boston for them. It's their shot selection approach trying to get into the paint more. And I, I don't want to be overarching because I know there's been a lot of Celtics fans that have been uh, that have not only been receptive to it, but that have also provided really good feedback in the comments that have helped me understand the team better. So like, I'm just more referring to a certain segment of Celtics fans, but I want to be clear. I'm not trying to be overly negative or undercut their title chances. I think the Celtics would beat the Bucs. I'm just literally talking about strengths and weaknesses, which is kind of the point of this show, if that makes sense. Two more. Used to love watching you and Newman hoop back in the day. Brandon Newman was my point guard, uh, one of our two point guards at uh, Arizona Christian my last year playing in college. He ended up making an All-American team the year after I left. Uh, he was kind of in and out of the lineup with injuries the year that I was there because he was coming off of an ACL tear. But Brandon Newman was the closest thing that I played with to a guy that kind of played like Chris Paul in terms of just like super methodical pick and roll play with outstanding passing ability and the ability to hit all of those like kind of in-between shots. Brandon's an outstanding player. Shout out to Brandon. Um, if, if you leave another comment, tell me how you, uh, tell me how you know him. Uh, last one. This is a quote from Jason. The Milwaukee Bucks will never be an elite defense. End quote. Milwaukee Bucks ranked sixth in defense since the Griffin fire. LOL. I think they're looking consistently solid on defense. That's a 15 game sample size for tough opponents. I have said many times on the show that they're defending way better since uh, Doc Rivers took over the head coaching job. In in large part, they're just competing better. Jay Crowder and Malik Beasley are doing a better job on perim on the perimeter than they've been getting uh, early in the season. That said, what, an elite defense is about personnel. An elite defense is like Minnesota, who has Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels, like two top-tier perimeter on-ball defenders, and Rudy Gobert, a like top-tier rim protector. The Bucs have an elite defensive front line, but their perimeter personnel is average at best and closer to below average. What that means is they will have stretches, 10, 15 games at a time, where they defend better by defensive rating. But to me, an elite defense is about personnel. 
I don't think Milwaukee needs to be an elite defense to win the title because I think they can be a transcendently elite offense. So it's not about what their ultimate ceiling is. I think this team, what they're doing right now in this ranking sixth in defense since the Adrian Griffin firing, they are building out the good defensive habits that will give them the best chance of being a good enough defense when they get to the postseason to beat the best teams in the league. But I think you're fooling yourself if you think Milwaukee's one of the best defenses in the league, uh, just given their personnel. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I appreciate you guys for supporting the show. No show tomorrow. I'm headed up to Northern Arizona to do some skiing for just the day. We'll be back on Wednesday for some game breakdowns and probably another mailbag, so drop some more mailbag questions. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. I'm Davis Miller, host of the new podcast, The Tao of Muhammad Ali. I met Ali in 1988, and surprisingly, we became friends. His influence profoundly changed my perspective on the purpose of life itself. I'll tell you that story and also stories of others touched by the champ. Listen to the Dow of Muhammad Ali on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.